Okay, so I am chatting with my friend Paul Nadeau today. Paul is one of those people where you hear his experience and story and you're like, pardon? (laughs) He did what? (laughs) I'm doing what with my life? (laughs) Paul is a retired police detective who completed an exemplary and full 31-year police service career specializing in hostage and crisis negotiations, international peacekeeping, counterterrorism, sexual assault, child abuse investigations, professional interrogations, and polygraph. He is now an admired global keynote speaker, published author of Take Control of Your Life, and motivational speaker. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much, Emily. It's great to be here. So, I mean, we've been friends for a little while now. It's been, uh, it's been a couple of years, hasn't it? Two, mm-hmm. three years now? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's been a great friendship too. Yeah, it has been. I mean, I love all the stuff you do. You do. You're such an amazing, inspiring person. I love watching all the different things you do. Well, thank you. And uh, I have to say the same thing about you. Uh, what really got me about you is uh, is your spirit. You're always so uplifting oh, and uh, helping you. others. So yeah, of course. So for people who don't know you, tell us, who's Paul Nadeau? Well, you know what? As you described, I'm a retired, uh, I came from a rough and abusive background, but uh, I chose to take a different path other than to be defined by what had happened to me. I chose to do something about it and help others. So who I am right now, now that I've retired from the police department, my goal is to help others and especially in, in the mental health area. Mental wellness is very important to me. I'm a published author now. Uh, my book, Take Control of Your Life, is in its second edition as of December 17th. So I'm pretty excited about that. But yeah, yeah. So you suffered from anxiety as a child, right? I did. You know, I suffered from anxiety and depression as a child, being abused. I was also being bullied at school and I didn't know how to fit in. You know, mm-hmm. like you often abused children, they act out when they're Mm -hmm. away from home. And I was that way and really got into, you know, I guess childhood depression. You know, you you hate your life. You know, you don't know what you're Mm going to do with your life. And it wasn't until I had an experience that really changed things uh, for me. And fortunately, it was in grade seven and that kind of changed everything. What was the experience? Well, I had I'd been repeatedly failing in school. I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to behave. Grade seven, you know, you're getting at that age where you like girls. And, you know, most of the kids in my school, or most of the guys in my school were bullying me. And the girls weren't paying attention because I was, a, you know, kind of like a misfit bad boy. And uh, it was one particular teacher who he announced to the classroom that we were having a test and that he expected everyone in the classroom to pass the test except for me. And he pointed that out. He says, you, Nado, you're not going to pass. I expect mm. you to fail. That kind of ignited something in me and embarrassed uh, me very much. And uh, that night I went back and I did something that uh, I didn't think I could do. I studied my heart out. And it got to the point where I thought I knew the material. A couple of days later, we wrote the test, and as was customary in his classroom, he'd call the person with the lowest mark to the front of the class to pick up huh. their paper. Yeah, oh, the walk. Nice. <laughs> it go, eh? You know, like the walk of shame. You know, like, <laughs> hey, Nadeau, uh, you know, 46, welcome to the front of the classroom. Mm. And I was so accustomed 
to being the one to walk at the front of the classroom. So when my name was not called the first, second, third, fourth, some of the students were turning around and kind of giving me, you know, shrugging their shoulders and non-verbally saying, why aren't you up there? And of course, I would shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. But in my heart, I knew one of two things. Either I had seriously messed up or I had passed and I had passed well because I told myself, you knew that material. You knew that. I was the second last one to be called to the front of the classroom. And that changed so much for me. That moment just kind of defined the fact that I could do whatever I put my mind to. And how did that help your anxiety? It started allowing me to believe in myself. And when you begin to believe in your abilities, it's not as dark anymore. You start to look for people that you can emulate or you know, things that you can read and, and do that might get you out of that dark space. And it happened very quickly for me. I started to really apply myself in school and with other projects. The age that I was, my father was no longer beating me. He was extremely depressed uh, himself to the point where he committed suicide when I was 17. And, you know, again, when you find yourself out of a dark place, you don't want to go back and you keep looking for lighter places to be. And I suppose it was a gradual, but it was rather quick for me. Mm -hmm. It would be so difficult losing your father that way, because obviously I can't speak for you, but did you feel torn to grieve him with how he had treated you? I did. And at first it didn't hit me. And it wasn't until uh, we were at the funeral home, open casket that, oh, I'm sorry. No, it was not an open casket. (laughs) It was a closed casket. But it wasn't until I actually put my hands on the casket that, uh, you know, that I broke down. Hmm. Because although he had abused us, uh, his family, you still have love for, you know, the people who are in your family, you know, and, and, uh, so you still loved him. I, I was torn. I did. You know, it was a love-hate relationship. I talk about him often because of the fact that I, I use these experiences to, to talk about in some of my keynotes and some of my um, counseling sessions that I have with others to show that, you know, although your past, you know, may have been bad, it doesn't have to equal your future that you get mm-hmm. to decide. So I use that experience often. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. So what would he do? I think, oh, wow. What did he do? Okay. Well, let's talk about that. He used to lock me in the trunk uh, of his car for hours on end uh, while he went and, uh, you know, oh yeah. Yeah. He used to steal from uh, several places. And when we got to a place, he'd take me out of the trunk. I'm six years old. And he'd say, okay, just stand here and make sure that no cars come up. And if one does, you call out to me. Yeah, so I got locked in the trunk uh, of his car, you know, for hours, and and, uh, he would drive all over the place. When I was seven, I think six or seven, I remember he took me to this old farmhouse. It was a summer's day. He got me out of the trunk, and and the place looked as eerie as any kind of, you know, horror film, you know, might look. And we were walking. He told me to come along with him. So we were walking towards uh, the back of the house. And I swear I could hear babies crying from the backyard. And uh, there was, yeah, there was this old cement building and uh, it looked like a cement garage, a huge garage. 
And I, I was terrified because it sounded like babies crying in there. And when he opened the door, he pulled me in and right in front of me, it was a slaughterhouse and they were slaughtering what? pigs. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine the guts and the blood all falling out right in front of my eyes and some of the blood splashing on me. And I, I just remember that. And that's the kind of thing that he would do. Um, what? He thought it was funny? I don't think he thought anything. You know, I, I really don't know what was going on in his mind. You know, I couldn't tell. You know, I, I'm so young. I don't know whether he thought I was man enough at the age of seven to see this kind of stuff or it's very difficult to get into the mind of someone who behaves that way. Do they have any feelings? I think he did. Was he a psychopath? I'm not quite sure. You know, the beatings were severe. You know, he was a, a strong man too. Put him at about uh, 5'11", muscular build, and he would beat me to the point where he had to sit down, catch his breath, pick me up and do it again. And we had this um. that uh, the barbers used to sharpen their knives on. And that was well-worn on me, my brother. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that he would do. Oh, and here's another story. I remember this so vividly. I was seven years old, and it was two weeks before Christmas. I was with my older brother. We were standing on the landing of our home, happy that Christmas was coming. We were playing a game, and uh, the door, the front door opened, and we were on the top of the landing, just a few steps leading to the front door. And when the door opened, we, of course, we both look, and it's my dad. And he's carrying a twenty-two rifle. And he looks up at my brother and I and stares us as cold as could be. And he says, I just killed Santa Claus. There's not going to be a Christmas this year. And then he walked downstairs and put his gun away. And that was the day I stopped believing in Santa Claus. Santa Claus didn't exist anymore. He was dead, and my dad had killed him. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that he would do. Mm. Wow. I love that even though you experienced these terrible things, you, you made a conscious choice not to allow them to define your life. I, I think that that's important for all of us. Sometimes when we look at some of the most terrific things that happen in our lives, we have two ways of looking at it. We can look at it as who us or something that happened for us. Now, mm. when I look back at my father treating me this way, again, you know, at the age of seven or eight, I remember looking up at him one day and thinking to myself, I'm going to be a policeman so I can arrest people like you. I wanted to arrest mm. my dad. Mm -hmm. So I look back on that. Had I not been abused as a child, I never would have been a cop and I never would have helped so many people. You know, it, it's just like, you know... <laughs> And I hate to say it, but my divorce is something that happened for me as well. You know, like mm -hmm. um, it allowed me to meet new people and to expand, uh, you know, who I was. So a lot of times we have to look at things as not having happened to us, but rather having happened for us, despite mm -hmm. how bad they may have been, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us tend to go through these things and just live in it, live in the anxiety and continue you know, living in the anxiety and the self-sabotaging behavior. How would you tell somebody to get out of that, to break that cycle? Well, this is what I talk about in my book in depth. Oftentimes, we have to remind ourselves that uh, our past doesn't have to define our future mm -hmm. and that it's not so much what happens to us, 
that matters is how we respond to what happens to us. So mm-hmm. we have a choice. And the problem is, you know, with self-sabotage, we all have it. It's something that uh, not self-sabotage is born in us, but the fight or flight syndrome. We are born to enjoy feeling good and avoid pain. And, uh, you know, that's instinctive in us. So we have this uh, fight or flight mechanism in us that we try to avoid pain at all costs and look for pleasure. When we grow up, it's almost like you have a bowl of water, a clear glass bowl of water. It's so clear when you are first born. And when you hear, you know, a sound that is disturbing as you're growing up, you know, a little infant or something or somebody shouting or whatever, you don't understand it. Imagine putting a little bit of dirt into that, uh, into that clear bowl of water. Mm-hmm. So it gets darker and darker. And as we grow into our feelings, you know, like and, and uh, communicating with other people and to us or something bad happens to us, more dirt gets into that clear bowl. Mm-hmm. Some people are able to clean that out pretty quickly, whereas others, you know, depending on nature or nurture, just can't. So we really have to work at uh, not only telling ourselves something positive, but taking positive action to clean, you know, that dirt out of our lives mm-hmm. and get on with our lives. So self-sabotage is something that we all experience. We all have this uh, negative loop in our heads, you know, like, hey, I'm not good enough or I'm not good looking enough or I'll never do that. I'll never be able to get this job, you know, and it's how we choose to deal with that negative loop that matters the most. It it makes the most difference. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that so many of us just continue on living with it and don't realize how much it's affecting our lives, our performance, our businesses. Yes, it does. And not only does it affect our behavior, you know, it affects the way that our body reacts to perhaps disease, anything else. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, if you're in a constant state of anxiety, your body is going to also be affected by that. So you may not have the energy to do the things that you want because. The mind, you know, like whatever happens in the mind, the body follows. It's a principle. Whatever happens, so there's a lot of things that uh, occur if we are living with self-sabotage and anxiety. What are some of the key steps in your book that you use to, that you recommend to somebody to stop this cycle? One of the things that I encourage people to do is to journal. Yeah, journaling is an amazing tool, you know, but not only journaling your life, you know, waking up and having, you know, a journal for the morning and a journal for the evening. It only takes a couple of minutes, you know, what you plan to achieve during that day. Like, okay, so today I'm feeling, I'm feeling kind of lousy. Why am I feeling lousy? A couple of lines, you know, like I didn't get the job or I didn't get the date, whatever it is. What do I plan on doing today? You know, like one, two or three things that I plan on doing. And that's it. What mantras do I want to tell myself, you know, and what action will I take to make my day a better day? You come back and you pretty much follow the same process, you know, how am I feeling? What did I accomplish today? Mm -hmm. Um, What good things happened? And then, you know, describe your day. So five minutes in the morning, you know, maybe five minutes in the evening. And it's amazing when you put something down in writing, how significant it could be in, you know, catapulting you to feeling better. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also encourage in my book to um, every two or three weeks, 
to do some self-examination. And what I mean by that is, you know, take a piece of paper and a pen or two pieces of paper and uh, write, uh, you know, things that are not going well for me in my life and things that are going well for me in my life. So you want to do the gratitude and you also want to look at the difficulties in your life. And this is really being honest with yourself. Okay, my relationship with so-and-so is not going well. Why is that? And then Mm -hmm. take some action to make it better. And then look at the things that you're grateful for as well. Mm -hmm. You know what? We've got two closets in our minds. On the one side of our closet, we have brilliance. We have hope. We have love. We have certainty. We have strength. But on the other side of our closet, we have all those dark emotions, you know, sadness, anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression. We take more time clothing our outer body to get ready for the day than we do to step into the mind and choose an attitude Mm -hmm. or what am I going to do today? I am going to feel great. I'm going to go out there and the first person I'm going to see, I'm going to say good morning and I'm going to stay upbeat. Tell yourself that before you leave for the day. This is the attitude I choose because if you don't, we tend to just grab whatever is nearest and that could be a very, very dark emotion and you carry it from the day before without having really stopped and thought to yourself, I get to choose how I feel. I get to choose how I behave. Mm-hmm. And I got to recognize that I can do whatever it is that uh, motivates me. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that. I need to start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I think it's good for everybody. Again, even the most inspirational of people or motivational people tend to fall into this self-sabotaging, but they don't stay there because mm-hmm. they recognize where they are. It's like, okay, no, this gnawing little thought is not going to take control of my life. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be a hostage to what somebody else says or what somebody else has done because mm-hmm. I get to choose how I react to that. And we just have to remind ourselves, hey, listen, it's a journey. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The idea is that we keep going. So Mm -hmm. if you begin to tell yourself, you know, happy things, which, you know, some people say, well, Paul, that's not enough. Of course it's not. And I talk about it in my book. Unless you follow through with the good things you tell yourself, the mantras, unless you follow through with action, you know, change your circumstances. Mm -hmm take a class, meet some new people, whatever it is, change your, you know, if you change your mindset, you change your world. Mm-hmm. So change your mindset. Mm-hmm. I love talking about your career because it's so interesting. I love that uh, you went, where were you? You went to, was it Syria? No, it was Jordan uh, during the Iraqi war in 2005. And what were you doing there? Canada did not send soldiers to fight in the Iraq war. We sent peacekeepers. And I was chosen to go to Jordan as a peacekeeper. And originally when I got to Jordan, I was an instructor. So what the Canadians were doing was uh, we were teaching the Iraqi police officers how to investigate crime, how to survive. We were teaching them self-defense. We were teaching everything. Mm -hmm. The problem was that um, the Jordanian International Police Training Center It was being run by Americans. Iraq was in such desperate need for police officers that they would would send us 3,000 police cadets every eight weeks. Now, after a short period of time, 
They're scooping people off the street. Anybody who looked like they could carry a gun, we're going to the Jordanian International Police Training Center pretty much, you know. So yeah. they could not vet the cadets quickly enough. So they couldn't do background checks or stuff like that. I mean, 3,000 every eight weeks, you just can't do it. So what the terrorists, some terrorists were doing was they were signing up to the Jordanian International Police Training Center. Wow. Yeah. And they got police uniforms and they got uh, the American pay. But their goal was to kill internationals. I mean, to make headlines. And that was one of their goals. You know, not every one of them, but one of their goals was to do that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we... uh, I had, uh, in some of my classes, I had Sunnis, Shiites, and the occasional terrorists. (laughs) And so it was quite the experience. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, though, as dangerous as it was to be there, it was a tremendous experience. And I have a lot of fond memories. And I think you already know this because you've watched my TED Talk, but it was a uh, terrorist who saved my life in 2005. I was about to be killed. A number of terrorists had been given an order to kill internationals, one one uh, you know June morning, and we were out uh, you know walking in the desert. We got there early because I had now been transferred into the ocean, and we got there before the other international instructors. And forty or so of these terrorists had surrounded my partner and I and began to beat us to death. But a terrorist stepped in and put a stop to it, uh, and uh, saved me and saved my partner. When I got, uh, of course, I had been hit a few times and I kind of figured, you know, right before the attack, this was going to be my last day, you know, like, hmm. and I, when I gained my focus after, after being hit, I looked for him and he, I recognized him. He was, he was one of my former students and Whoa. He, he, yeah, yeah, he was one of my former students. And when I reflect, I think it was because of the way that I treated everyone in, uh, in my class with dignity and respect. And, uh, you know, when you treat others in a particular way, you usually get what you give. So I, you know, not knowing who I was dealing with in my classrooms, I treat everybody the same. Hey, listen, I'm here to, uh, you know, not to tell you what to do, but to teach you a few things that I've learned. I'm here to communicate with you. And I hope that you can share some stuff with me. And, uh, you know, like, let's have fun. Let's just have a great class. Hey, I'd get them singing. I'd get them. Uh, you know, <laughs> oh, it was great. Oh, yeah. We, uh, I had a little uh, American Idol thing going on, uh, you know, <laughs> with them, you know. They love to do it. After, uh, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes, but get them singing and telling stories, and they just love that. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So something that I notice about you is that you always highlight the positive to every negative. And it's something that I've always been very drawn to. When you tell a story or you know, bring up a memory. You don't point out that the story wasn't you were beaten while you were there. It was that you were saved while you were there. Right. And I love that you always make that conscious choice to choose to see the positive side. And I think that's such an important thing that we all could learn to do more of. I agree. Is that something that you consciously do or is that just how you, how you kind of think? That's kind of how I think now. I programmed myself that way too, you know, because again, we've all, everyone has experienced adversity and Mm -hmm. setbacks in their life. But if we choose to focus on those things, they define who we are. 
So mm-hmm. we have to look for some of the positive, you know, like, I mean, bad stuff happens to good people and it happens all the time, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, if good people start to let those bad things define them or, uh, you know, uh, make them feel bad, then they remain a victim and a hostage to those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I became a hostage negotiator or even working in the sexual assault and child abuse unit, uh, and I worked there for several years, I recognize that we all have a choice to either remain victim or to become survivors of whatever happens to us. So I started getting to my head, you know, very early on that I get to choose how I see anything that's happened to me. And yeah, I'll feel bad. Sure, I will. You know, I mean, everybody does. Something bad happens, you know, a relationship goes bad or you don't get uh, the job that you want. You're going to feel bad and give yourself just a little bit of time to do that. But then think to yourself, okay, what can I improve next time? Or or why did this happen? Or, you know, how can I put a positive spin on this? You know, Mm -hmm. maybe I need to take a little bit more training. Maybe I need to behave a little bit better, you know, whatever it Mm -hmm. is. But yeah, I do tend to put a positive spin on things. (laughs) Did you write your book all by yourself or did you have anybody help you? Nope. I wrote it all by myself. I had it edited uh, professionally because I tend to repeat myself over and over and over again. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Oh, yeah. And that was one of the things that my editor said. He says, you know, you mentioned this in about three different places. Go oh, well, okay, <laughs> if you say so. But that's why I hired you. Do you think you can edit that for me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was a great experience. I got to say, I never planned on writing a book, Emily. Hmm. I No, everybody kept saying when I got back from the Middle East and with my police career, I used to tell stories and people said, oh, Paul, you got to write a book. You got to write mm-hmm. a book. And I thought, no, nah, I have no inclination to doing that. I, I don't know. And uh, after my divorce, I had to get a job you know, to pay off the lawyer's fees and, and also to help myself live. Mm-hmm. And I got That's a, always I got fun. A, it is always fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a hard road sometimes, but God, we are all in it, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, after the government job, I got a government job for a year and a half. It was a contract job. And once that was done, I found myself with nothing to do. I was looking for work, but I didn't have anything. And then uh, the thought of writing a book came in my mind because I had this free time. And I thought, okay, well, how do you do that? So I went to Indigo Chapters and I picked up a book on how to write a book. <laughs> I did. I came back and I thought, okay. So I, I read right. I read the first 40 pages, thought I knew it. I wasn't a committed writer, so I would write, you know, maybe a couple of hours one day, take a week off, come back and maybe write a couple of more hours, you know, take Ugh. a couple of days off. And this was going on for like six months, eight months. Yes. Then I realized I need to make a commitment here, you uh-huh. know, otherwise this book will never get finished. Mm -hmm. So I went to Facebook and I wrote a post and I said, I'm writing a book. And I thought nobody would respond to it. Well, I got about 15 of my friends saying, can't wait. When's it going to be ready? And I thought, okay, it's going to be ready in uh, six months. You know, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Question mark. Yeah. Oh, God. So you gave yourself a deadline. I did. I did. That meant I had to commit myself in the full body and soul. I had to commit myself, and I did. And when I looked back at at everything that I had written, I realized I should have read the rest of the book that I had picked up on writing a book because I didn't have chapters. I didn't have subchapters writing. 
Mm-hmm. That's when the editing on my part happened, and once that was done, then I sent it off. My brother uh, knows this woman in Ottawa who's uh, an editor and, and a writer, and so I sent it off to her, and I said, listen, do you think you can edit it? And so for a fee. And then it came back, and I self-published. And mm-hmm. HarperCollins happened to find a copy of it, and they said, this is a good book. We want to publish this worldwide, and you know, are you interested? And I said, <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. yeah. So, and <laughs> I that, suppose so. That's, oh yes. Oh my goodness. Yes, I. Yeah, I was. You know. So yeah, love it. Love it. Love it. So that's that's how that book came. Sometimes I find that I just have all these ideas that come to me when I'm writing, and then I'm just stuck. Did you have any of that? How did you get unstuck? Writer's block. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to step away from it, you know, for a short period of time. Or, you know, for me, when I got writer's block, I had to go back and read what I had read and thought, okay. I hate reading what I, what oh. I write. Oh, so do I, Emily. Oh, no, do my. you? Oh, I hate it. I, there comes a point when you're writing that you think, okay, I'm never going to read this again because I, uh, I just can't. It's the stuff that you wrote, but you've read it a million times, you know, mm-hmm. and making all these little adjustments. And you're thinking, okay, where do I go now? No, no, just take a break, Paul. Come on back to it. You can do this, you know. And, you know, you, you sing a little song. You can do this if you try. You can do this, you know. So yeah, you try and you go back to get motivation. You know, sometimes I'll just go for a long walk, you know, and I'll, I'll have my notes in hand or, or mm-hmm. you know, my phone so I can make notes think of my story. What do I want to say next? How does this progress and how does it end? There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, I'm going to tell stories and I'm going to, in these stories, I'm going to show how, what you said earlier, show how the positive stuff, you know, like uh, came out of it and then end it with the lessons that I discovered or that other people taught me. Mm-hmm. And so that a story Talk about, uh, you know, the lessons and what did it teach me. And that kind of is the... And you just kind of know, fill in the blanks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fill Kind in of the how I plan a business. And, uh, I have an idea of a beginning, a, a middle and an end, what it, where I want to get to, and then I just fill in the blanks. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, you've obviously filled in the blanks quite well. <laughs> oh, thank you. I try. So 31 years in the police force. That's a long career. You must have seen all of the things. Oh, I I did. And because I worked in so many different divisions, because I was Mm -hmm. never satisfied where I couldn't be a constable all my life. You know, when I became a detective, that was my goal. But then I became a hostage negotiator, a peacekeeper, polygraph examiner, you know, an instructor. So I had a lot of variety. I wouldn't want to be the man that dates your daughters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? It it was kind of fun because we used to kid about it when they were growing up, you know, and I said, well, just bring your boyfriend in. I'll be cleaning my gun, you know, and last boyfriend. Polygraph test. Exactly. Yeah. Polygraph (laughs) test. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My youngest daughter in particular, Cassie, uh, she's the one who has uh, that great CD out right now, and you know her. uh, Mm -hmm. She's a sweetheart. Um, she's a sweetheart is right. Um, both my girls are. But Cassie, uh, I remember she says, you know, Dad, because you were talking so much about police work when I was young, she says, you know, I got so into it. And she says, and I learned a lot, you know, like as Aww. I was growing up. Yeah. So she really enjoys it, you know. So she told me the uh, about uh, two months ago, she says, there's a song, I, I think it's Beyonce that sings it, uh, Daddy Lessons. 
And okay. she says that, yeah, yeah, and she says that reminds me of you, Dad. And and uh, it's quite a, yeah, it's quite a cool song about uh, you know the father and daughter and and what the uh, father teaches the daughter. So it was it was yeah, it's a cool song. What was your favorite area that you worked in? Well, that's hard to say. You know, I can't really say that I had a favorite. The least favorite was uniform. I didn't like uh, being in a police uniform, driving around a police car all the time. Mm-hmm. That was my least favorite. Loved being a detective, especially a detective in the sexual assault and child abuse unit, simply because I got to help so many victims of sexual mm-hmm. abuse and child abuse. Loved being a hostage negotiator. Now, uh, you know, some people say, what, really? Talking to hostage takers, you know, or suicidal people, you know, turns you on? No. Well, it did, yeah, because, you know, let's be honest. I'll be honest. It did because I got to help and save lives. Being an international peacekeeper uh, was a great experience, too. So I would say those are the three top ones. Did you see any similarities between a lot of the problem people? Like, were they, did you see anything that kind of connected them or that caused them to be in the situation that they were in? Well, no, there were some similarities definitely uh, between some people, but we all experience things differently. And and oftentimes it's uh, nature, nurture experiences. So, you know, if you're dealing with a suspect, for example, of a sexual assault, oftentimes you will discover that they were sexually abused uh, mm-hmm. themselves, you know, <laughs> depressed people, you know, suicidal people. Again, you know, life experiences are the fact that they, uh, you know, continued to be um, hostages to themselves and, and mm-hmm. uh, continue to sabotage themselves and, and not think, uh, you know, like uh, of their worth or what they had to be grateful for, you slip into this depression. So there are some similarities, but it, um, everybody experiences things differently, mm-hmm. and, you know, but it was amazing how, how much more we are similar than we are different, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I tell this to people is, you know, like we are more similar than you might imagine. You know, we all laugh, love and bleed in the same way. We're mm-hmm. all. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I think that we really need to make some changes with how we treat addicts and people in jail and how they break the law. I don't, I don't think that we should be punishing addicts so much as we do and jailing the amount that we do. I think that a lot of these people, you know, helping them would go so much further than punishing them. I, 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 we've got it backwards in North America with how we react to drug addicts and and a lot of quote-unquote criminals. I will agree with you there. I had such a a success rate in uh, even my professional interrogations when I spoke to, you know, some of the most hardened criminals and getting confessions from them. And people say, well, Mm -hmm. how can you get confession, uh, you know, confession from a a murderer or Mm -hmm. a robbery suspect or a violent criminal? Well, again, you know, like uh, oftentimes it's your approach and uh, I would walk in and it didn't matter uh, who I was going to be interviewing or interrogating. I would start off with a standard line. Hey, I'm Paul and uh, I'm not here to judge you or find you guilty of anything. I just want to talk to you. And right now, you know, you've been accused of this and, uh, you know, 
I have no idea who's sitting across from me now, but I would really like to get to know the person sitting in that chair before we even talk about this accusation that was made against you. Mm-hmm. And then you sit down and you start chatting with them and you find uh, some common, you know, a, a rapport or something in common. And it flows. And some of the criminals would break down and cry. I'm not kidding. Because mm-hmm. as soon as I said, I'm here to treat you with dignity and respect, I remember this biker. He was about 300 pounds, big biker and, uh, you know, pretty big fella. I walk in and that was one of the first things I said was, hey, I'm here to treat you with dignity and respect. And he says, you're the first one to ever say that to me. And he broke down. You know, he, he told me what I wanted to know. So to get back to what you were saying, yes, I think there is a way that we can connect with addicts and criminals and treat them differently and help them in their recovery. Because pretty much anybody can become an addict, you know, like uh, something can set you off, you can start drinking too much, you can start Mm -hmm. taking drugs, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Some people are able to, uh, you know, to not be people who could easily become, you know, an addict or homeless or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, you know, your circumstances could could set you off, you know. Sometimes um, my team volunteers at um, one of the homeless shelters downtown. We'll make lunch and serve lunch. Did you come with us once? No. 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 But uh, obviously I'll get to talking with some of the people there and the stories that I hear from them. It's like one of the, the gentlemen that's so often there was born to an addict mother. His mother overdosed when he was a child. He was raised by his older brother. They grew up on the streets and then his brother overdosed and died, leaving him at like 11 years old on the street. So she followed in the path of addiction. It's like this poor little boy, this is the life he was born into. And then we take this person and what, we throw them in jail? Like there's this horrible person. What do we expect of him? This person needs care and help, not punishment. That's right. Or at least the opportunity to be cared for and helped. And Mm -hmm. some, you know, I mean, you're going to get those who just do not want your help and do Mm -hmm. not want your care. They're just bad to the bone. Mm -hmm. You know, George George Thorogood would say, (laughs) bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. Yeah, that's it. You know, let's start singing here. Uh, But yeah, there's some people who just don't want it, you know, and and for whatever reason, but there are others who say, you know, I I want it or, Mm -hmm. or when when you offer it, they're happy to take it mm-hmm. because throwing them into a cage, you know, with other criminals is going to only teach them how to be more criminals mm-hmm. you know, or more 100%. criminal-like. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our heart has to go out to people who have been victimized and traumatized that much, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. We really never know what somebody else is going through day to day. No, we don't. No, we really don't. Uh, it's funny because I remember the first time that I was, I opened up about having anxiety and and mental health problems years ago with a client. It was back in 2012, I think. And they said, oh, I I have similar problems. I had to take a few months off of work last year. And I was shocked because here was this huge CEO that I'm talking to at the time. And they're telling me that they suffer from mental health problems. And that was like a big aha moment for me. I was like, okay, 
I am not the only one here. And then, yeah, now that I'm open about it, I hear about it so much. The problems that people go through and the problems that they've overcome or that they continue to overcome daily. There is a, uh, unfortunately, a stigma out there that you cannot, you know, talk to people about uh, your your mental health issues mm-hmm. and that it's, uh, it's a faux pas, which is something that we need to change. There are more people experiencing it than we, you know, could ever know. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people keep it to themselves, you know, so it's I like... I used to be so embarrassed by it and think that if anybody knew, I, I would never be successful in business or, you know, have a boyfriend or have friends or be respected. I was so embarrassed and mortified by it. I thought it was a weakness. And I remember the first time that I went for help in 2011, I remember saying to Kirsten in, in my office, you can never tell anyone because she was managing my clients while I was gone. Because I thought if anybody finds out, I'm over. Wow. And, that must uh, have been hard. <laughs> it was just, yeah, I just, I, I, I think it's gone. It's slowly getting better for sure. Um, with people being more open about it and more accepting. I know that at, in my office, we're, we're quite open about it with one another. My team and I all talk about it and my friends and different people that I meet. But I know back then in 2011, it was very much a lot more taboo than it is now. No, yeah, it was absolutely difficult for sure, 100%. You know, and a lot of these things um, are are slowly being addressed and people are acknowledging that it's okay to talk about them because, uh, you know, even back in the 60s, you know, my mom being beaten by, you know, her husband, you could never talk about that. You couldn't. You just couldn't talk about that to your friends. Whatever happened in the home stayed in the home. Mentality has changed, you know, like... Mm -hmm. uh, Reporting, uh, you know, sexual abuse, you know, like uh, that's, uh, you know, now okay to do, even though a lot of people are afraid to do it. But we are slowly working towards finding ways to encourage people to talk about the things that they're going through, which I think is very, very important for, you know, all of us. There is a of being vulnerable with others. And, uh, you know, a lot of people look at vulnerability as being a dark emotion. They associate it to pain, loss, regret, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. But actually, vulnerability is because we've all experienced something in our lives. And when we share those experiences with others, we not only get, uh, you know, their support, but we help them go through something that they're going through. What we need to do is establish empathy for one another. And we don't get, if there is no vulnerability, there is no empathy. And if there is no empathy, there is no connection. What we've lost is a connection to one another. We hide behind our our phones or our laptops and we, you know, post all these things to make ourselves feel better. And some people, it's great. But a lot of people who post these things are are disconnected. Mm -hmm. And human interaction is difficult for them. So my message, and I gave this uh, to the Canadian Mental Health Association when I was their opening speaker back in, in September, we need to bring empathy back to this world. And in order to connect with one another, we need to be vulnerable with one another. And I truly believe if there is no vulnerability, there is no empathy. And if there is no empathy, there is no connection. One of the reasons that I was so successful in connecting with criminals and, and uh, victims of, uh, of serious uh, you know, assaults and such 
is that I would tell them a little bit about myself, you know? Mm. Oh, they're different. When you share a story, people suddenly realize, you mean I'm not alone? Mm-hmm. More people are going through this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because sometimes we think that we're all alone in this, and this is one of the biggest, I guess, stumbling blocks to moving forward is thinking that we are all alone in this. We're not. Mm-hmm. You know, we were born through connection and it is through connection that we achieve our greatest things. And, you know, as I say, it's to be, yeah, it's to be vulnerable. It's to be empathetic. It's to connect with another human being and say, you know what? I'm just like you. I am just like you. You know, let me tell you a story. You tell me a story. And then we get people opening up, you know, that's how I see it. I love that. Mm. I love the the daily steps too. Just acknowledging how you feel, putting it into words. Um, and you can also kind of, in, in a way, you can do your own cognitive behavioral therapy through that, which is, you know, big for, for anxiety and mental health and see where your thoughts are and retraining them and where they're going. You're right. How, how you're feeling. So I think that, you know, what you mentioned earlier about those practices, I think that's really great. Thank you. Yeah, I, and I, think I encourage people to journal and, uh, you know, to keep their thoughts down, uh, you know, or write them down. When you write them down, you get to see them. You get to go back to them, you know, like months later to see the progress mm-hmm. that you've made. True. Mm-hmm. So now, you. where can people find more about you? Well, if you, uh, if you Google my name, a lot will come up. I do have a website, uh, one that's under construction right now, and it, it's paulnadeau.com, but the one that is active, that needs nadeau.com. But I guess one of the easiest ways would be to just uh, Google me and, uh, yeah, yeah, pick up my book. Perfect. And where can they get your book? On Amazon? Uh, they can get it in uh, most bookstores across North America and on Amazon and almost every uh, book outlet there. I came across a couple even today that I didn't know. I mean, it, you know, oh, it's, um, yeah, Google is even selling it. You know, there's a Google store and they're selling the book. So, yeah, you know, I'm looking and I'm thinking, okay, where can you get this book? And it's all these things, uh, Barnes and Noble, you know, like uh, they've got it. And uh, mm-hmm. in some Chinese place, they've got it, you know. So, uh, yeah, you can get a lot of places. Well, you are so inspirational. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, thank you, Emily. And it's always a pleasure. 